Hi, my name is Jess. I serve as one of the leaders here at the Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at the Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note, the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. Well, you guys can have a seat. My name is Steven, and I serve as one of the leaders here and uh, get the opportunity to open God's word with you guys today. We're going to continue our message series called That You May Believe as we walk through and follow Jesus through his story written by one of his best friends, a guy named John. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 9 today, so if you have your Bible, if you get there, uh, John's in the New Testament of the Bible, about two-thirds of the way through, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you have your phone, it's way easier, Uh, though paper versus digital, we can debate which was better, but uh, we'll leave that up to you. If you have none of that, uh, we also have the words on the screen for you guys. Uh, Growing up, I loved funny movies. And still today, like I, when Jess wants to turn on a movie, I want a comedy. Like that's it. I love funny movies. I love to laugh. I love making people laugh. And so even as a kid growing up, um, I would watch movies, some that I probably shouldn't have, but that were funny. Um, and one, uh, of my favorite directors was a guy who did these farces and, um, I believe he is still alive. I should have looked at that before I started talking about him, but his name is Mel Brooks. And if you guys are familiar with Mel Brooks, Mel Brooks uh, is a director of absurd movies. They're so funny. Movies like Blazing Saddles and Spaceballs. And then what I think is the, the epitome, mainly because I watched it when I was young and formative, but the epitome of a comedy to me is Robin Hood Men in Tights. Now, I grew up like with 17 different Robin Hoods, right? Like we had the animated Disney version. That was so great. Do, 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 do. If you guys know the, uh, the movie, you know that, uh, that melody. Uh, I loved that one. Uh, I, you know, I think Kevin Costner was Robin Hood at some point. Like there are so many Robin Hoods, but Carrie Ewells is the, he is Robin Hood to me. Uh, I love this movie, Robin Hood Men in Tights. And there is a character there um, that, that in today's lens maybe is not the greatest character. He's maybe a little insensitive, but he's a blind servant. Um, and his name is Blinken. And Blinken, uh, there's just continual hilarity around Blinken and what Blinken does as, as someone who is visually impaired. And uh, I think my favorite scene uh, is he is in the lookout tower. And I remember he's blind, right? So uh, Robin Hood comes uh, up and he says, Blinken, what are you doing? And Blinken says, I'm guessing. I guess nobody's coming because he's blind, right? He doesn't know. So as a lookout, like that's not his gift, right? Like that's not, he, that's not the person you want on the lookout tower, right? So, so. Robin Hood says, okay, you know, get down from there. And, and, and his response is, I, 
I guess there's a, a, a ladder around here somewhere. And he finds the ladder. And then as he's trying to climb out of the ladder, the ladder falls. He falls down. And then he says, I can see. And he's so excited. And he turns immediately and he slams into a tree. And he says, nope, I was wrong. And I think that, like, that, to me, that's like the height of comedy. I watched it with Jess. Jess has never seen the movie. I pulled it up on YouTube. We watched that scene last night, and I laughed again. Like, it's so funny to me. It's funny to me, uh, but it's also a, a, a real reflection of us, I think. I think blindness is true about our society. We're blind to things and we don't even know that we're blind and we're out doing things like standing on a lookout tower trying to be a lookout and we can't even see. We're trying to be spiritual advisors or we have people in our society that are influencers that are spiritual advisors that are spiritually blind. They have no idea what's going on. And the sad thing is, is they think they can see. Right, That moment where Blinken's like, oh, I can. And he runs into a tree and realizes he's not. And so often, I think this is the reality in the state of the world. I think sometimes it's our reality as well. Blindness is a real problem. It's something that is more pervasive than we would like to think, even in our church, even in the big C church. And so today, Jesus is going to take the, uh, the issue of blindness on full force, He's going to heal a man who is born blind. And so uh, we're going to be in chapter 9 of John. And we're just going to read the story. And then I'll have some thoughts about it. So John chapter 9 verse 1 says this. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither. This man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground and made some mud from the saliva and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Isn't that the one who used to sit begging? Some said, He's the one. Others were saying, No, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. Where is he, they asked. I don't know, he said. So this is like, you know, one of the weirder stories, one of the grosser stories in, in Jesus' uh, you know, life, right? He literally spits on the ground. Like, it's still spit. Like, Jesus was still human. It's still saliva. Like, he still spit on the ground and then threw it on a dude's face. Like, that's gross, but the, the interesting thing here really is not centered around the healing, though, like, why did Jesus spit? I don't know. 
Why did he put mud on his eyes? I don't know. Like, I've got no clue. If you have insight, I would love to hear it um, because really it's just weird. Uh, but it's what Jesus chose to do, so we're just going to like say, okay, Jesus, you can heal however you want to heal. That's what we're going to learn from that. But the, the, the real connection that we should be seeing here, it, it comes early on. It comes in, uh, in verse 5 when Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, if you remember from last week, if you were here with us, or if you're familiar with the, the, uh, the gospel of John, Jesus has these seven I am statements. His first one comes in chapter 6 where he says, I am the bread of life. His second I am statement came in chapter 8. And he says, I am the light of the world. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. We talked about what, it, what, what that means. It could be that, that light gives life. It could be that, that light illuminates darkness. It could be a lot of different things. Or it could be all of those things. And I think it is all of those things. And so Jesus here wants to draw a clear delineation between not being able to see and his ability to bring light. So this, these, these two stories are put together. Could they have been one after another? Yes, like they could have been chronological. John doesn't, John's not a huge fan of chronological. He's a huge fan of like putting themes together. So maybe these things happen back to back. Uh, but really what we need to know is that John is trying to show us like, hey, this connection of Jesus being light and this connection of this man being born blind, they're very, they're very important for us. It's very important for us to draw these two things together. And we start off with, with this theological question being asked, and this is actually probably something that happened a lot, where the, the disciples would just be walking with Jesus, right? They're, they're, you know, they're, they're traveling all over, so they're walking together all the time. And they're probably asking Jesus theological question after theological question. Any of you that have been with you know, toddlers, you know that it's question after question after question. And these guys are spiritual toddlers, right? They know nothing. And so they're asking Jesus question after question, and Jesus is answering. This is actually kind of how the rabbi-disciple relationship would work in, in ancient Judaism, where they would just follow these guys around and ask you know, these wise rabbis questions, and the rabbi would give answers. And so this is probably something that happened all the time. And this question, though, Jesus really wanted to hone in on, I think it really impacted John as well, because we don't see a ton of these situations in the, in the Gospel of John where the disciples are asking a question and Jesus is answering it. We do see it in, in the other Gospels. A lot of times in the other accounts of Jesus' life, uh, these questions come after when Jesus just like made this really big parable and the disciples are like, Jesus, we did not understand that. <laughs> like, can, can you break that down for us? Right. So this is, this is a preemptive, hey, we, we want to know a question but the reality is, is, is what they, they're looking at is a man who couldn't see. And to them, this disability rendered him less than. This, you know, when, when they look at someone that was different than them, they thought that they were other. And so... They thought that he was suffering, and so they, they said, well, suffering and sin kind of are tied together, so obviously there must be some kind of sin, and we cannot discount that there is an overarching relationship between sin and suffering. We, we, we know that. We know that when, when we live in sin, we know that when, when the nation of Israel, when we, we know that when things happen, when, when sinful things happen, when people did wicked things, that suffering was a result. We just know that. 
And then God would come in and God would, would alleviate that suffering because of his grace and his mercy and try to draw people back to him. But there's an overarching relationship between sin and suffering. We can't say that suffering is never a result of sin. We can't say those things. But what we can say is that not all suffering is a result of sin. Not all suffering is because we did something wrong. And to the disciples, they hadn't quite got there. They had this view of God that if something bad happens, I must have done something to earn it. And friends, we're still there. Like, we haven't moved past that as a people of God. We still assume that when we lose a job or when a tire goes flat or when, you know, we get sick, like, we often are like, oh, well, what was the sin? Or if it's not in our lives, if we're not self-reflective like that, we often look at other people. We say, oh, well, maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. I know I do. I wonder what they were doing to get out of God's protection. And I think Jesus here wants to really readjust how we see sin and how we see suffering and how we see the relationship. You know, this blind man, I think Jesus is setting him up as truly a representation of us. His suffering, his blindness, spiritual blindness, his physical blindness, all of it. But what I love is that, that they knew he was born blind from birth. I don't know how they knew that unless they knew this man. But just like all of us, he was born without the ability to see the beauty of God. And all of us are born the same way. We may physically be able to see God's beauty manifested in nature, but all of us are incredibly incapable of seeing the beauty of God from birth. It is Jesus, the light of the world, that illuminates the beauty of God. And it's when we come into relationship with him that we're finally able to see. And I think that is what really this whole story is about. See, when Jesus comes in and when he heals this blind man, he doesn't just allow him to see a little bit. The darkness doesn't kind of just hang around on the edges for this man. It's completely eradicated. His light doesn't dampen darkness, it eradicates it. Like light, when you bring light into a dark room, the darkness just goes. And so when Jesus comes in as the light of the world to our hearts and to our spiritual blindness, it's eradicated. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, this man who, who could not do anything, who was begging, they knew him from begging. That's what the passage says. Suddenly, this man can see. His blindness is eradicated, and it's beautiful. And I think that's important for us to look at early on in this passage. Like, y'all, when, when Jesus comes into our lives, the darkness of sin is eradicated. It still may linger. We will still sin. Things are still there. The darkness still is around us. But as far as us being able to see the beauty of God, we are fully healed. And as far as spiritual blindness goes, that is always, always, always God's plan. God's plan is to always eradicate spiritual darkness from us. 
And his plan is to eradicate spiritual darkness in all of the world. That's what the end of the book tells us. Eventually, there will be a place where there is no sorrow, there is no sin, there is no pain, there is no death. That's the beauty of the illumination of Jesus as light of the world. But Jesus has so much more to teach us here. And I think it starts with the very root of the question, who sinned? This guy or his parents? Now, if he was born blind, I don't know what sin in utero he was committing, but like that's kind of what they were saying, right? Like, you, you must have done something when you were in your mother's womb that caused you to be blind. I don't think that makes any sense. Maybe God was pre-punishing him, right? Like, I know you're going to do bad things, so I'm going to make you blind. Like, that doesn't sound like God. So the root of the question really comes from legalism. The righteous, the, the righteous religious establishment, and I use righteous in quotes there, has shown a legalistic view of how real righteousness works. They assumed that if you do bad things, bad things happen. If you do good things, good things happen. Does that sound like any other worldview you guys have heard? It's not a biblical one. But this is what the religious establishment of the day had kind of brought together. And guys, back then and today, Jesus has no patience for legalism. He just doesn't. And if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write that down. Jesus has no patience for legalism. When, when we talk about Jesus and, and, and you know, there's, there's people who are, are, are more bent towards grace and, and more people who are, are, you know, maybe bent a little towards like calling people out. I see that in, in, on, you know, on the call people outside. You're like, well, Jesus always called people out. And I said, and, and when you read scripture, Jesus called out legalism. Jesus didn't have patience for it. He attacked the religious establishment and said, you guys think you can earn your righteousness. You think because you were born a Jew that you are good. You think because you follow a set of laws that you wrote, not even the ones that I wrote, when you follow your own laws, you think you are better and you think you deserve good things. And you think when people do bad things, they deserve bad things. They have this legalistic view of what's going on. And Jesus was just not having it. And so if you read the, the stories of Jesus and you look at the times that Jesus is as angry with people, that he's being harsh with people, it's always people who are trying to put God in the box of legalism. And Jesus came to really buck that system. But friends, for us, like we, we, we may not think in terms of like, you know, I, I think I can earn my righteousness. But how often when trials come, do we try to make some better decisions to try to make it stop? Like, oh, something's going wrong, so I just need to pray more because I haven't been praying enough. Or, oh, I need to read my Bible more because I haven't been reading my Bible enough. Or, ooh, we need to really make church a priority. Or, or oh, we just need to give more, right? And, and none, none of those things are bad. Praying more is not bad. Reading your Bible is not bad. Plugging into your church is not bad. Giving more is not bad. None of those things are bad. But they don't earn you the right to anything. That's not how righteousness works. Righteousness is given, not earned. 
Because nothing we could do would ever be found righteous. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write that our righteousness is as dirty rags before God. So anything, any of those things that we just did, it didn't earn us to be more righteous. The good thing about that is the truth of the gospel is that we are made righteous through Jesus. But we assume that when something is happening to us that we must have done something wrong. We must have sinned or, or fallen short. So if we just kind of like do good things, we'll get back under God's good graces and the bad stuff will stop. This was actually the ideations of ancient pagans. When bad things happened, they would sacrifice things to try to make the bad things stop. They would sacrifice children. They would sacrifice animals. They would do anything to make the bad stuff stop because they assumed the gods were angry with them. An earthquake happens. A bad harvest happens. There's a sickness through the country. Something has to be done to make it be fixed. While we may not sacrifice others, we sure sacrifice ourselves when we're trying to fix bad things. When, we, when something is going wrong in our marriages or something is going wrong in our families, we will do whatever we can to try to make it stop. And while I do believe we need to work on being better spouses and we need to work on being better parents, we need to work on being better friends, we need to work on being more like Jesus, all of those things I believe... But guys, it's not going to make the trial stop. Because oftentimes trials aren't just a result of sin. It's too simplistic. Because there's this thing called grace that may be the most messy thing I have ever heard of. Grace and mercy don't fit into the box of do good, do bad. They cover it. And so when we're going through trials, friends, stop trying to do better so it stops. Maybe God is allowing something to happen because, yes, he does want to draw you closer to him. And so reading your Bible more and praying more and going you know, deeper into community with the church, maybe that is the, the whole idea of it. But we don't do good things to make bad things stop. That's not our faith. That's paganism. That's Hinduism. That's anything but Christianity. And so I think this, the, what, what Jesus is, is, is beginning to teach his disciples here, and, and as we go through the passage next week, we'll see more of it. I think Jesus is trying to, to say, hey, your view of righteousness is wrong. Because sometimes trials are for our good. Sometimes things that don't look like they're working out to plan for us, they're to make us more like Jesus. And to short-circuit a trial is to cut short God's glory through that trial. Like if God just let only good things happen to us because we belong to him, when would we ever think that we need him? If we never struggled, if we never suffered, if we never had to go to him, if he never had to bail us out because of our bad decisions, if he never had to bail us out because the world is broken, if he never had to come and save us, where would his glory be? 
In fact, Jesus says at the end of this story, or in the, sorry, in the middle of the story, he says, this man was born blind so that my glory would be made manifest. Trials, for us to try to do enough to get out of those times of testing. Friends, sometimes we're short-selling God. Because he wants to show us how he can save, not how you can save. We want to save our marriages. We want to save our families. We want to save our jobs. We want to save our financial situations. But maybe God says, why don't I? And for us to just try to do better and not lean into him and his grace and mercy, we're taking glory away from him. We're putting it on ourselves. But friends, not all trials are afflictions. And not all afflictions are really afflictions. Let me show you a picture. This is Fisher, and I'm going to cry. Fisher is my nephew. And my brother and sister-in-law struggled for many years to become pregnant. They lost two babies, Noel and River, along the way. So when Fisher was born, we were ecstatic. And he was only born a few months before Sparrow, so it made it even more special. And from birth, however, Fisher, Fisher's parents noticed that there was something that wasn't normal with him. He spent six weeks in the NICU. And after months and months of poking and prodding and testing to find out what was going on, they found out what makes him unique. He was born with an extremely rare genetic disorder called Coffin-Seer syndrome. CSS is so rare that there's less than 200 cases in medical literature reported. His parents are in full-time ministry, so when the diagnosis came down, everyone in their sizable church began to pray for them, and we're so thankful for that. There were a few issues that he had with his kidneys that needed to be fixed, and so they prayed for that, and we, for that we're thankful. He struggled to put on weight, so they prayed for that, so for that we are thankful. But then came the well-meaning comments that were completely unwelcomed and insensitive. People were praying that Fisher would be normal and that God would fix him. Now, to give these people the benefit of the doubt, these people were doing what they thought was right. See, in our human minds, we often think that normal means same. But why? They assumed because Fisher was going to be unique that there was something wrong with him. But friends, look at him. What's wrong with that kid? Nothing. He is beautifully and wonderfully and meticulously made by God. God knit him together in his mother's womb. God captured Fisher's days in his book before he was ever born. In fact, this is what my brother and sister-in-law believe. And, and before, as I was preparing for this message, I, I asked Michael, who's Fisher's dad, I, about all of this. I asked him, you know, in light of, of what Jesus says in, in John chapter 9, like what, what do you think about Fisher being made exactly the way he was made for the glory of God? 
And this was Michael's response. Obviously, my son's genetic condition was not a random genetic abnormality or mutation. God designed every cell in his body, every strand of DNA for a purpose. I think our whole story of infertility and miscarriages, Fisher's NICU stay, and all of this is proof of how faithful God is. His comfort through it all and his continual giving of faith to us through everything shows his goodness and his commitment to his children. Seeing the fulfillment of the promises just by Fisher being born can show us how good God is. But we also believe that his life will be a tool God uses to bring people closer to him. Just like all suffering is not caused by sin, we need to realize that all suffering isn't really suffering. Fisher isn't suffering because he's neurodivergent. His parents aren't suffering because their little boy is unique. We all firmly believe that Fisher was made to bring glory to God just the way he is, just like this blind man was. In this instance, Jesus healed the man because that was Jesus' plan all along. But not every different ability is an affliction. Not everything that isn't what we planned is an attack of the enemy. Just because it doesn't look like we thought it should doesn't mean it wasn't exactly how God intended. The way that God is reflected with people in the autism spectrum, it's beautiful and their souls matter. The way that God is reflected in people who are deaf is beautiful and their souls matter. The way that God is reflected in people with Down syndrome and Coffin-Sears syndrome and spina bifida and cerebral palsy and all of the other conditions all of them, God is reflected beautifully in them and their souls matter. Heaven celebrates when each person with these so-called afflictions puts their faith in Jesus and lives out the plan that God had for their lives before time began. They do not need our pity or prayers, but they need our love and they need our support. They don't need our sympathy. They need our empathy and our compassion. Because God designed them for his glory so that he could be better reflected. But because they don't look the way we think, because they don't think the way that we think, we think there's something wrong. But they're unique. Because God made them. And he loves them. Just like they are. Legalism tells us that God works one way. That merit and the pursuit of perfection are all that matters. But friends, God has no patience for legalism. The pursuit of perfection, it's a mindless pursuit. The pursuit of Jesus, that's worth it. The pursuit of merit, all that will do is bow our back with the weight of the world. But the pursuit of Jesus makes our yoke light. It shows us the beauty of God. It eradicates our spiritual blindness. Some other things that I want to pull out as I'm headed towards the end here. It's on that same vein of legalism. Friends, it, it, it was not this man's obedience 
that healed him. It was Jesus. So if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write that down. This man's obedience didn't heal him. Jesus did. We often look at miracles in the Bible and we think those things. We think that washing in rivers or standing up or touching the hem of Jesus' garment, we think of those things as healing people, but they never did. Jesus healed them. If it was obedience that healed, we wouldn't need Jesus. If faith could save us, we wouldn't need Jesus. Obedience and faith play a part, but Jesus does the work. If this man had, could have done anything to heal himself, do you think he wouldn't have done it? All he could do, though, was trust that Jesus could. And friends, we do the same thing. We try so hard to obey well enough that we are saved. We try really hard to do the right things, to obey what we have learned so that we can be okay. But friends, we can't. We never could. Your faith in Jesus doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Faith is the action that we take to allow it to happen. But Jesus does the saving. And I think in our legalistic view of things, in the disciples' legalistic view of things, they assumed, well, if he just didn't sin, maybe he wouldn't be blind. But friends, even if you and I just stopped sinning today, without Jesus, we'd still be spiritually blind. It's the reality. Our friends, no matter how great they are, no matter how much good they do, if they don't know Jesus, they're still blind. They still don't have the illumination of truth. So I want us to look at two truths before we go. The first one is that if we recognize your blindness... Jesus will give you sight. I think that's the message of Jesus throughout all of the Gospels. If you recognize your need for him, if you understand how much we are dependent on him, he will heal us. If we just saw our need for him, if we brought to him our brokenness and our hurt, our desire to to be more like him. He wants, he wants to help. But so often we just take things on ourselves. I just have to do better. I just need to be better. I have to stop sinning or I have to do these things. And we put it on us. We put it on a broken human form that is unable to do the things we want. Instead, Jesus says, Come and lay your burdens on me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. If we recognize that we are blind, Jesus will heal us. One of my favorite commentators, a man named R. Kent Hughes, put it this way, those who are blind are the ones who do not realize their need. Those who receive sight are the ones who sense darkness. The Pharisees thought they had it all together, thought they had arrived, that through their acquaintance with the law, they knew they were perfect, but they did not understand how deeply infected they were with sin. 
So they adopted the external appearance of having dealt with sin. Though actually they never faced the darkness in their own heart. They were self-satisfied. They said, we see. When in reality they were blind. The Pharisees were literally blinking. They were the religious Blinken standing on the religious watchtower, supposed to be keeping watch over the people of Israel, and they couldn't see. And Jesus is Robin Hood rolling up on a horse saying, what are you doing up there? And their response was, we're guessing. (laughs) We guess. Nothing is coming. And Jesus, Jesus was like, stop. Blind can't see no matter how hard they try. But if we're willing to admit our own blindness, if we're willing to sense the darkness, if we're willing to allow Jesus to heal us, he will. It's the beauty of grace. It's the beauty of the gift of salvation. The second truth that I would love for us to think on is this. If you think you can see on your own, you can't. If you think you can save yourself on your own, you can't. If you think you can hold your marriage together by yourself, you can't. If you think that you can guide your family by yourself, you can't. If you think that you can chart the path forward to success yourself, you can't. If you think you want to lead your friends to a better life, by yourself, you can't. And that's hard. I think that is the most countercultural part of the gospel. Our society tells us anything we set our minds to, we can do. And I think that's pervaded into the church. Or anything we set our minds to, we can do. God is a nice additive to that. We think of God kind of like as a, a turbo boost on Mario Kart, right? Like, it's, like we're, we're the one driving, but you know he'll give us a mushroom and really push us forward and let us go faster for a little bit. As opposed to God is the track, God is the car, God is the tires, God is the engine, God is all of it. If we think we can see, but for Jesus, we can't. I think that's the beauty of this miracle. Is this, this man, what was his response when they asked how you could see? He said, the man they called Jesus, he spit on the ground and he put some stuff on my eyes and I washed it off. I don't know. Like, it was just Jesus. It was just Jesus. Charles Spurgeon a great preacher. He had something to say on this topic, and this is how I'm going to end. Charles Spurgeon wrote, it's not our littleness that hinders God, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ. It's our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ. It's our supposed light that holds back his hand. Friends, when we take things back from God, when we try to do it ourselves, we rob him of his glory. 
when we try to show God the way that he should go, it's when we don't see where God was actually taking us. When we think that we know, when we think that we can earn, when we think that we can do it, we don't allow God to be God. This man was born blind. My nephew was born unique. But God wanted to show his glory. I can't wait to see God's glory revealed through Fisher. I cannot wait to see the people who will come to know Jesus because of Fisher. I can't wait to see the spaces that my brother and sister-in-law are able to access that none of us might be able to because their son has coffin serous syndrome. I cannot wait to see God's glory revealed in something that we think is a mistake, that we think is an affliction. But the reality is we just can't see because it's not our smallness that hinders God, it's our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders God. It's our strength. It's not our darkness that keeps the light away. It's our supposed light. Let's pray.